being a school principal might just be the most interrupted job on the planet. Every celebration, classroom party, and great lesson in the school, you're invited. Every difficult conversation with a parent whose child is not behaving or with a teacher who's chronically late to work, you're there too. And every emergency in the building with 500, 1,000, 2,000 people in it, it's your emergency. And on top of all that, you are responsible every day for the safety of the world's most precious asset, our children. How do they do it? We're here to find out, here in the principal's office. Hi, I am Jeff Gorski, and I want to welcome you to the Principal's Office Podcast, a podcast dedicated to teaching and accelerating the principles of school leadership. As charter school consultants, we get to ask teachers, principals, board members how they're going about building their school of choice, then pass on the best tips, tricks, and trends from the most accomplished public charter school leaders around with the hope that you can apply what you hear to help your school community. If you like what you hear, Please learn more about what we do at Leaders Building Leaders, where we aim to be the difference maker in the leadership development of individuals and organizations. We work across the charter school landscape in all of North Carolina to support the governance, academics, operations, and leadership of schools that want to grow. Learn more about us at leaders-building-leaders.com. For this episode, we recorded at Francine Delaney New School for Children with school leader Buffy Fowler. She welcomed me onto their campus to talk about what makes their public charter school unique. And let me tell you, their their approach is unique. During our conversation, Buffy tells us exactly how they ensure diversity among the student body through the state's only dual lottery, why all of their buildings are round, and how to focus, refocus, and refocus on your school's mission. As a public charter school going into their 20th school year, Francine Delaney New School for Children could have grown their enrollment and their size, but at every step of the way, Buffy explains, the school has decided to remain small and minimize their footprint, to blend in with their community, and to value the school family that they have built, understanding that their small size is an asset to their mission, not to mention that they've stayed debt-free the whole way. And after two decades of serving the community, the school is starting to see the children of their founding students, enroll, which I can only imagine has got to be among the most amazing thrills that a group of educators can experience. I really want to encourage you to think about all the ways this school has run every decision through the test of comparing it to their mission and considering their values because they've achieved a very special learning environment by being intentional and having a clear vision for a sustainable future. So, Please enjoy this conversation with Buffy Fowler. At Francine Delaney New School for Children, we are going to start our year this year with the largest student body we've had, uh, which is going to be 174 students. Um, We um, have, I was just told last week that we are considered one of 10 charter schools in the state that meet the definition of diverse, um, which is what they consider, what the way they defined that was that you don't have 80% minority or majority and your um, racial makeup reflects the um, LEA that you're located within. And so you've had to work really hard to get the school to reflect the 
I mean, the racial makeup of the community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But in doing that, it was really important to do it right from the beginning when we opened. Because when we opened, we had 98 spaces. We started out extremely small, had 98 spaces, knew that all 98 we would be filling. So from that point forward, we knew that we wanted to be aware of the demographics because once you have that initial 98, if you're too off balance, it's really hard to play catch up because the, you know, the following year you're pretty much enrolling your kindergartners with a sprinkle of kids throughout the school that's not going to, you know, affect those numbers as much. So um, from the beginning we worked really hard to um, try to make sure that our school reflected the community that we're located within. And so you did that through your lottery process? Mm-hmm. After, like, so, so now you've established that. Mm-hmm. You've got siblings who are tri- trickling down from there. And right. so since then, have you, have you manipulated your lottery process in some way? Well, we actually are the only charter school in North Carolina that is under a federal court order to um, have two lotteries, one African-American lottery and one non-African-American lottery. And so then we pull from the list to make sure that our numbers continue to reflect that percentage that is similar to Asheville City Schools, which is the school system we're located within. Two separate lotteries. Yeah. So how do you, what percent of your school do you pull from the African American lottery versus the other lottery? We typically, um, Asheville City is around... Trying to remember exactly what they're around, but we typically look at approximately thirty percent, and and try to stick close to the thirty percent so that we stay in line with being similar to Asheville City. Interesting. So as as other schools have been given the permission to explore weighted lotteries and trying to figure out how they would get their charter school to reflect their community. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give them about how to make that work? Um, well, and to my knowledge, as of so far, the weighted lottery that they've been given permission to do only entertains socioeconomic levels. Um, I think for North Carolina to truly start to reflect true racial diversity in charter schools, there's going to have to be given some um, some ability to do weighted lotteries for race as well, um, because I mean, without that, you're you're putting all those students, regardless of their race, into one lottery, and it's not very likely that we would have ended up with 30% African American if we were to have a combined lottery. Um, it's important still to go out and network and reach out to the other communities to make sure that you have applicants that are diverse. So your applicants still have to be diverse um, and you still have to have a pool to, to pull from to begin with. So we, in the beginning, we um, were a group of teachers that all came from within the local LEA. So we already had connections in the community with different community centers, different parents, different community leaders. Um, And so it was a lot of networking with those community leaders to make sure that we got the word out to the communities of of, um, either a broad span of socioeconomic or racially diverse communities. 
we really had to network because we tried newspaper, um, radio, TV, and that's not what reached a diverse group of, of people. As you know, word of mouth is the strongest way to let people know what you're doing and, and to let them know whether it's good or bad. And so the people that we networked with knew who we were, knew what we were about, knew what our philosophy was, and they helped us connect with different groups of people that would help us have a more diverse applicant pool. And so just to understand the history of it, so you came in with that as your, as your, in your mission right. to, be a, to be a school that serves our population that's reflective of your community. Right. And so you said it was a, it's a federal mandate or a federal It's a federal uh, court order. Right. So was there, the state wouldn't give you permission before and you had to seek federal permission? How did that pan out? Well, actually, um, when we decided to pursue our charter, we, we purposely located, wanted to locate our charter within the Asheville City School District instead of just the Buncombe County School District. Um, in, in Asheville, we have two school districts, one city district and one countywide district. We purposely chose to locate within the city school district so that we would be under that federal court order because that federal court order is for the Asheville City Schools. And so any school that is open, any public school that is open within the Asheville City School District must follow that court order. So we chose to be in the city to follow that court order and to and to ensure that we would be more successful with having a diverse population. The population in Asheville, it, it's an interesting community in that you can drive 15 miles in any direction and lose your diversity quickly being in the mountains. So uh, we did want to stay within the city limits. Wow. Is this a like a, a back office function that results in what you have happening in the classroom? Or is this kind of a focal point when talking to the community or talking to families about what makes the school a unique and special environment for children? Well, our um, the theme of our school and, and a really strong belief, kind of a philosophy and belief that we, um, that is the forefront front and everything that we're doing is our social justice statement. And um, we really work hard to work with social justice topics and themes throughout kindergarten throughout eighth grade and so it is something that we talk a lot about with family and communities and um and the community at whole of of how important it is to to be able to continue to have this diverse population of students because when your theme is social justice um it falls in line with the the community that you are providing services for whenever they're a diverse population. So what is an example of something that you would do for kindergartners to teach them social justice? We start out um, actually on the first day of school talking a lot about families and how families are um, that word the definition of families is not as narrow a definition as what it was I think whenever I came through school and so Kids are invited to bring in pictures and information about their family that represents who their family is. And so within that discussion of what a family is, it really opens the eyes to kindergartners that 
family can have many different, look many different ways for many different kids and that their family is not only, um, that their family, there's, there's not necessarily a norm anymore for what the definition of family is. And so our, our social justice topic starts out with families and what makes your family different. And um, that kind of leads into respecting and the rights of everyone. That's phenomenal. Do you ever find that teaching that as a value is in, in conflict with families that, that come here? Um, the value that we're teaching is appreciation of all families. Um, we don't try to indoctrinate any kids on what their family chooses to hold as acceptable or not. Um, we do believe that a huge issue in social justice issues are that if you can't put a face to the issue, then it's very hard for you to understand or how um, or to fight for the rights of someone else. So from kindergarten, if you have a child in your class that has two mothers or two fathers or maybe multiracial, um, to you, you understand that as a person. Now it becomes a personal mm -hmm. issue. It's no longer a um, ambiguous, abstract issue. You put a face to these issues that we start to talk about as they get older. Um, and so it's not necessarily that we are trying to instill a certain opinion or value. We're presenting this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And we, we appreciate families, and we appreciate that families look different. So starting with that kind of message of acceptance from kindergarten, where does your social justice focus shift once you get up to your middle school kids? Um, well, our middle school kids, um, they, they do a lot of outreach projects in the community, um, they also have a lot of student choice in their projects. And they, um, a few years ago, our middle school students did a um, project on the Selma to Montgomery um, when it was the 50th anniversary of Selma to Montgomery. And so they had a, an art display of Spider Martin's art, which was um, the... Spider Martin was one of the photographers during the civil rights movement who happens to be his daughter, happens to be a friend of one of our teachers. And so um, his artwork is some of the artwork that's displayed in the Smithsonian that represents the civil rights movement. And there weren't very many photographers at that time willing to go into the front lines of things mm -hmm. like Selma and Montgomery. So through this art exhibit, the middle school kids got looked really in-depth at the Voting Rights Act and the impact that that has on um, African-Americans, but not only African-Americans, but people living in poverty. And so it it gets into so many different topics that kids are able to choose and to focus on what part of this aspect interests me. And so looking at the Voting Rights Act and then looking at other populations of people that have um, 
that have ha had rights withheld. And so then that may stem some kids at, at starting to look at topics that would be deemed controversial, you know, uh, um, and you ask about, you know, how do families feel about addressing some of those issues. And it's, it's doing a lot of not only student education, but family education. And also helping students realize that just because your opinion is different doesn't mean that you're right or wrong either. That part of being true um, civil rights and social justice means that we're looking at everybody as individuals and appreciating what they believe and what they learn. Um, so some of the other projects, as the year goes on, the middle school kids do TED Talks. And so they can pick topics that interest them to, to deal with with social justice. And it could be social justice in the environment. It could be animal rights, social justice. It could be child labor. But then it could also be um, gay and lesbian issues, you know, and, and, and how to be advocates for people that are experiencing issues with civil rights now. So um, we really allow the kids to go with what they're passionate about. So, and I ask this question because even if uh, social action isn't your charter school's focus, every charter school has a focus, a reason that they are unique right. to schools around them. So, do you do you use that in teaching of your academic subjects, or do you use that as an additional kind of add-on? And now we're going to teach this. No, I see that as something that that is pretty much integrated in, across the board in all of our subjects. I mean, that's um, especially as the kids move up in the grade levels, what they're going to be reading about um, for their, you know, history, social studies is going to be connecting with how does social justice fit into this time period in the world. Um, whenever, you know, third and fourth grade are looking at Native Americans, we're looking at, you know, kind of what... What all happened there with, um, you know, the Trail of Tears and the Cherokee and, you know, there, there were some issues there that America kind of messed up on. And um, so just really examining different parts of history with as a critical thinker of did we do this right and what can we do to try to prevent this mistake from happening again? I think that's such an important idea within charter schools mm -hmm. is that it's not separate. I mean, I think it'd be easy to say, okay, we are going to be a STEM school. That means we're going to have STEM class or a STEM right. club. Um, but the impact of using those kind of questioning everything, yeah. testing everything in, right. into whatever you're teaching at all times makes it all more impactful. Right. When I, I remember a school where I worked once where we had, um, you know, we at the beginning of the year decided that we really wanted to stress citizenship mm -hmm. to the school. So we tried to think about how we could use this across everything. Mm -hmm. If we start off the very, instead of at the end of the year having our student government elections, make them the very first thing that right. we do in the year. Right. Have people talking about it, have things hanging wherever we can. And, you know, that idea spread through the other classes. This was a middle school, but it spread right. through the other classes so that it was just a topic whenever someone was misbehaving. It came back to right. We are we are participating as citizens. We're going to hold 
almost like a trial here of what is going on. Exactly. If somebody is just being disruptive as citizens of this school and of, of this group, mm-hmm. how are we going to treat this? Things like that. Well, what we do in the first few weeks of school in every class, kindergarten through eighth grade as well, is we, we have kids talk about what their hopes and dreams are. And from those hopes and dreams, we talk about how you make a plan to make those hopes and dreams come true. And then what kind of self-discipline you have to have to make those hopes and dreams come true. And that helps develop the class roles. And so throughout the year, if um, there's someone struggling with being part of the community, it goes back to, but this was part of your hopes and dreams. And we decided as a class to help you meet your hopes and dreams. These were the things we needed to do. That's not happening, so what do we need to do to fix it? So it's that same kind of thing of relating back to, um, you know, putting it back on them of, of quality, being quality, sure. quality workers. And so the students share that with each other, like their personal... Right, goals. yes. That, that gets posted in the classroom and stays up for the entire year, mm-hmm. what, their, what their personal hopes and dreams are. So, and... The first few weeks for the younger kids especially, but it's part of their homework assignment as well, so their parents help them kind of talk about what their hopes and dreams are and their goals. And um, then as a class, the the first six weeks, that's a huge part of the community building and routines and structures set up is talking about how do we make those hopes and dreams actually come true. So... Social justice as a focus is one thing that makes this charter school unique in its mission. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you can point to that, that separate you from you know, the schools around you in the community? Yeah, absolutely. I think that our size. For many years, I would go to charter school meetings at the Department of Public Instruction and would hear over and over, you know, it's just pretty much impossible to do with less than 200 kids financially. Mm-hmm. Um and it's been very hard to do with less than 200 kids financially. But we focused on what what our belief is and what our mission is. And we have certain non-negotiables that help us meet that mission that also foster our belief that budget-wise we have just always stuck with and said, no matter how hard, we're going to keep it small because... Part of being a social justice themed school means getting to know those people, you know, the people that you're living with in your small community and keeping that small has been one thing that's been really helpful about helping us getting to know each other. Um, So I think being small, you know every kid, you know every parent, and you know a lot of their grandparents. And now that we've been around for a while, we're starting to see kids of kids that we had when we first opened. So this year we'll have four kids of former students that went to Francine Delaney, which is really cool. Now that is a legacy law that I think we should make happen. I, I agree. Children of charter school kids. I, I agree. I'm not sure what, you know, that <laughs> it, it's already hard enough to get in, so that might be a hard one to convince people yeah, right. of. But I agree. I think that if you went to a school, then... There should be a little bit of weight on getting your children into the school, but we, we will have four children starting this year of kids that we had here as well. So is there there's one class of each grade through the school? Just one class per grade level, correct. That must really make kids have to sort things out 
and and get to be tolerant, if not accepting of each other. Uh, absolutely, they they end up growing up being a lot like brothers and sisters. Yeah. So um, sometimes it makes the middle school years harder, and sometimes <laughs> it makes it a little easier in that you don't have a lot of the attractions and the the crushes because who wants to have a crush on their sister, like you know, just because sure. they've been together forever, but. Sometimes it makes it harder because of that small group having to, you know, the, just the peer group not being as large to choose from. So um, there's there's pros and cons to it with, you know, with every charter school. Sure. There's things that we don't have because of our size, like um, a, a band or a football team. Uh, we don't. We aren't able to participate in more competitive sports just because of our size. Our entire seventh and eighth grade would have to play, you know, a sport to be able to have a team. So there are some drawbacks, but I think that the um, size outweigh outweighs the the drawbacks as a benefit. Sure. So certainly another unique thing about this school are your circular buildings. Yeah. Right. So, right. how is that intentionally planned? Like, how does that fit into the the school? Well, the when we first, um, well, we're located on four acres of land in the middle of a residential neighborhood in West Asheville. When we first opened in 1997, this part of Asheville was considered worst Asheville. Um, now it's the most expensive market in Asheville to buy housing and so we were really fortunate to be able to get the property before property values shot through the roof Um, when we started to build a permanent structure um, we talked with the community around us in West Asheville what what would you want to see because we wanted to be a good steward of the community we wanted you know, we're community-driven, we're social justice. We did not want to leave a footprint that was going to be a black eye mm-hmm. on our community. And the one thing that we heard from our neighbors was is that they wanted us to continue to leave the residential look to this community. And so that kind of moved our thinking away from one large building to multiple buildings. The fact of not having as much funding... Because of us being small, we didn't want to have heated hallways because we felt like that was a waste of money. And so we wanted all of our square footage to be actually usable square footage for the kids. And so um, we started looking into some green building initiatives, and many of those were way out of our price range. Um, they should be called green building initiatives for more than one reason. <laughs> one because they cost a lot of green as well. But um, but we were we kind of one of our parents was building a house that is one of these Dell Tech buildings, which is the round circular buildings. And so we got connected with him and learning about the buildings. The Dell Tech company is here in Asheville, and so these are prefab houses, pretty much that are made here in Asheville. We connected with them. They thought it was pretty cool that they had never done a school before. And so we just developed a partnership with Dell Tech to say, you know, what could we do? A lot of really good, green, energy-efficient um, aspects of the round buildings. Um, the best ways to use square footage round buildings. So it just seemed to kind of fall into place. 
uh, using a local company felt good. Square footage wise, when we started, the price was what we could do. Um, so it just kind of met all of the criteria that we were wanting to happen. And it kept the look of the neighborhood more residential than institutional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and it looks like you pay a lot of attention to the landscaping also. Is that student-driven or family-driven? It It is student-driven. Um, we had, it's, it's student-driven, but led by our after-school program. Hmm. Um, but different grade levels have taken on different parts of the campus. And so the second grade has a monarch butterfly garden that was funded by the University of Minnesota. Um, There's also a pollinator garden that goes across the campus that was funded uh, through some funds from Bee City USA. We've been really lucky to to learn that gardening is is one area that there seem to be a lot of funds for in Asheville. Uh, There's a lot of people that are really backing and putting a lot of energy into enhancing the environment in this area and so um but the middle school kids have classes on friday afternoons that they can choose in their electives for gardening um our every class kindergarten through eighth participates in a feast class each week week which is a gardening and uh learning about fresh fresh foods uh fresh fruits and vegetables and so they kind of take on some of the gardens as well so it is mostly student-driven with the primary overseer being the after-school program. So here's a question for you then. So you're, in, you're coming up almost to your 20th year. Yeah. You've got families that are returning back with their children to come to the school right. once a year. Do you, have you developed any kind of way to track your graduates and kind of evaluate yourselves based on where your where your kids go as they grow up. We do that to the best of our ability. Um, since we are not the high school, um, it does make it hard because of the FERPA law for us to try to track kids down if they move from our last known mm-hmm. address. Um, we do have a couple of alumni that we have pulled in to help to give reports each year on the kids that just graduated from high school to to see where they're going and but we pretty much track our students through Facebook and keep up with them through social media um and we you know we're just now seeing some of our kids that have graduated that were here when we first opened it's really cool that we're seeing some of those kids in medical school now Many of our kids, you know, for high school get accepted into the School of Science and Math. Um, We have kids that are doing some pretty amazing things just out in the community in social justice. We have a student that's interning at the Human Rights Watch in New York. Mm -hmm. And so there's some really good things that we feel like are happening with our kids. Um, We, that's one area that I'd like to be able to do more formally, to have actual figures and numbers and percentages but like I said without the um, high school piece and us knowing what they've done at the end of their high school program it's been a little hard to follow all of them so so why do you think for the most part families choose to come here instead of just going where they were going to go anyway hmm 
I, I think there's many reasons. I think that um, families that go out looking for their, you know, just thinking about kindergartners coming in. I think families that go out and look for what they want for their child, they look for, they look at the size of our school. They look at the relationship that they have from the time they call and ask the first question about our school. We invite the men to go into the classes to for a day to see what it's like. Um, I think the word of mouth they're hearing from other parents, um, the success that their kids are having, on top of the reports of the test scores, our kids do really well. We make really good growth. Um, but I don't think that that's the one thing, you, you know, I don't think it's the test scores that are driving our families here. I think it's the fact that after being here for 20 years, we're really starting to be known as a school that is very strong in social justice and has a diverse community. And I think that a lot of parents that choose to come, that's what they're, they're wanting. It's interesting to try and make a connection then between the energy that you put into uh, social growth mm-hmm. with their academic growth. Mm-hmm. So how do you talk about or how do you connect those two things? I don't think you can disconnect those two things. Um, I think that I my background, I started, when I started teaching 20 plus years ago, we won't say exactly when, <laughs> but I started out as a Head Start teacher. And so development and social-emotional health in students, to me, is right on the forefront. And I honestly believe that if we were able to have children pick what their passion was and to pick what made them happy, truly happy, that... Um, not only will we solve a lot of the world's problems, but that their academic performance would be so much stronger because you're putting you're putting it back on them to make their dreams come true. And um, I'm not sure you can have the academic strength without paying attention to the social and emotional health of, of kids. And I think that as time goes on and we see things that happen out in the community and you know, in America and in the world as a whole, I think that that's something that schools are going to have to be paying more attention to is how are our kids growing socially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we do hold that as a very high value right up there with the academics of what is best socially and emotionally for our kids and trying to balance that with the push for testing and push for memorization and rote memorization and it you know just it, it's a it's a tough thing to balance to make sure that you keep kids dignity intact that you make them feel worthy and you show them that they are worthy and you show them that they appreciate them keep that in the forefront as much as academically where are they what is it like for the kids who lottery in in later grades? Um, that's a really good question. Kids who lottery in at a, at a later grade sometimes have a little bit of culture shock because 
they have been able to, oftentimes, they've been able to be part of the scenery. And here it's very personal. Um, you develop a personal relationship with your teacher, and your teacher's on top of you. You know, you you don't get to fade into the row of desks and kind of just do enough to get by. Um, kid, kids that come in, you know, struggle with not reading a chapter and answering the questions and being done. Um, we don't use textbooks. And so all of our resources are real books, um, authentic materials, and the expectation is is that you will be a critical thinker. And sometimes being a critical critical thinker is, is really hard if you haven't been challenged to do that. And so sometimes kids struggle in the beginning and they feel that it's hard, but we give them permission to say this is harder than what I'm used to and we talk to them about it and we talk to them about their struggles and try to support them to, um, you know, be successful. And within just, you know, six to 12 weeks, oftentimes those kids get really excited about being at school when they weren't before. We have kids that Going off to high school, many of our high school students, especially in writing, because of when you're not just picking A, B, C, or D, you're doing, you are having to do a lot of narrative writing and and writing about your thinking. And going off to high school, our, the high school teachers have said that our kids are, the writing is amazing, and our kids think that it's easy once they get there because it's not that expectation of being such critical thinkers and and having to explain. I think it's B. And this is why I think it's B. You know, they go to high school and it's B. Okay, you're off the hook. <laughs> the thing is, is that, you know, after this, after being open this length of time, we've been able to really identify what the common holes and, and gaps are in kids coming in. And it's not necessarily in their academic or their skills. It's more in their relationships with other kids and how to communicate and how to be critical thinkers. So you can have an A-plus a student come in and still kind of be, cha- you know, not used to being challenged and be challenged to express an opinion or to stand up to prove their thinking. That's the part they're not used to. That's the part that makes it hard, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, so let's let's go here. Uh, okay. So it is the start of year number nineteen, or year, this is year number twenty. Which is it? This is this is the start of year twenty. Okay, so this is the start of the twentieth year for this school. Mm-hmm. You said a lot of your staff sticks around here. You don't have a high high teacher turnover. Mm-hmm. So what things are most important to you and the staff here at the very beginning of the year, starting a new year? Um, making sure that the support is in place for the students in each class. So evaluating the needs that the particular class coming in, but then also looking at the new students that are coming in to see what supports are going to need to be added to that classroom to support that new student. Um, it's very individualized. It's, it's not like we have a huge checklist of make sure A, B, C, or D is done. Mm-hmm. 
we pretty much have a checklist of here are new kids that are sprinkled throughout the school. Um, let's get in those classrooms. Let's talk with those teachers. Um, let's talk with those parents, those kids, and figure out how things are going. What do they need? What do we need to put in place? Do we have our support staff in the right places? Um, I would say that's really the biggest thing is, you know, what we know the kids that we had last year. The biggest thing is our new kids that we're getting in. Do we have the support in the right place mm-hmm. to support them? Has that, has that emphasis changed over the years? Like, did you have to get to that place or has that always been out the way it's been? Um, that's always been a big piece of it. But after 20 years, the other pieces have gone smoother mm-hmm. You know, just the up and running, um, the traditional how will car riders work, how will um, late kids work, you know, our kids adhering to dress code. Are, those things tend to go smoothly the longer we're here and the longer families stick with us. The longer we've been open, the fewer and fewer students that we lose through the years, you know, so we don't have as many new students. So it's kind of always been the focus of who are our new students and how do we help support them. Um, but now it's primarily our main focus. And the other things kind of tend to fall into place more. That's a good place to be in. Yeah. I mean, being around a lot of young charter schools, first year, second year, third year, I mean, that's all it is right now. Yeah. It is. It is we need to figure out how many kids are here figure out how we're going to you know, get more if we're not full, mm-hmm. uh, process people and rework the schedule when we figure out it doesn't work, teach the kids these things. Mm-hmm. So I love that answer, that that's your priority, is addressing student needs as early as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're already doing... Um, teachers don't officially come back until next Wednesday, so they've got another week before they have to be here. Unofficially, they've already been here for an, a week before this, so they, they come in about two weeks early. And they're already doing phone calls and meeting with new parents and, um, you know, just finding out what what are your hopes and, again, what are your hopes and dreams and where are you coming from? Why, why did you choose to pick up where you were and transition your child? Because everybody has... A, re- a really good particular reason and they're all very different one can be my child was struggling one can be my child wasn't being challenged one can be my child was refusing to go to school because they were being so bullied um, you know just the many different reasons why they choose to show up here so finding that out first of why are you here what what are you looking for can help answer a lot of questions mm-hmm. that you may have later on if you just kind of ask it first thing. Are there any individual success stories, not using any names or anything like that, of course, right. but that, that you feel like really reflect kind of, I don't know, maybe make you the most proud or that you are, that you look to and say, this is, this is a win that was, that was a result of, of the reason why we're here together doing this. To, to look at one individual story, I can't do that because there's so many because... That's a good that's a good thing. <laughs> I look at... Well, I look at, I mean, individual kids that I feel like have come in and to the school and two years later you look at them and you, 
You see them walk different. You see them hold themselves different. You see them speak up, um, look at adults, talk to adults, interact with adults. And, and that's the expectation here is that you are worthy of me listening to what you have to say. And so seeing kids come from a setting where they did not believe that or understand that or feel that to a point that they own it, Mm -hmm. to me, that's our biggest success stories. Yeah. So what, in order to make all this happen, Mm -hmm. on the small school size that you've decided you're going to have, to offer busing. Right. Do you have a, a nutrition program also? We we do, um, and the, that's two of our non-negotiables, to yeah. be able to keep our diversity and to be able to really have... Um, I, I think as charters, we have a responsibility to take serious that we are a public school mm-hmm. and that every child should be able to attend which means removing any barrier that would prevent a kid from coming. And those are the two biggest that I feel would prevent some of our kids who are here from coming. And so we do provide bus service um, for kids that live inside Asheville City School District. And then we have a lunch support program for kids that qualify for free or reduced lunch. Um, Initially, we started out participating in the Federal Free and Reduced Lunch Program because we don't have a kitchen and because we're very small, that food was being catered in from a local hospital. Mm. And over time, what happened is the what you've heard or what is stereotypical of hospital food ended up being true and that the kids didn't like it. <laughs> and so the only kids that ate it were the kids that qualified for free lunch. And then what happened was it became more or less a racially identifiable group. Mm. And then the food started getting thrown away. And then whenever the guidelines changed with the federal free and reduced program where the nutritional analysis was required and so much more paperwork was required, that program was costing us around 25000 a year on top of the reimbursement that we were getting from the federal government. And that 25000 was the staff to do the paperwork and the nutritional analysis and to dot all the I's and cross the T's. And so we really had to start looking for an alternative because paying 25000 for kids who need to eat, to eat was acceptable to us, but paying 25000 for kids to throw away food mm-hmm. that was also a racially identifiable group was going against our social justice statement. And so we um, really started thinking outside the box, which is what we've had to do with such a small school and a small budget. And we have now converted to a program where kids who qualify for free or reduced lunch get a gift card from a local grocery store so that parents are able to buy their their children's food. So they get to choose what their kids have for lunch, and it's it's something that they um, have a choice on. There's only two staff members in the school that that help run that program that know which children receive that assistance. So it's no longer a racially identifiable group. Um, With all students, teachers look to see, do they have a lunch that is um, sufficient 
semi-healthy. You know, parents have different opinions on what's healthy, but we look to make sure that they have a decent lunch. And for any kid in the school who doesn't have a de- you know, a lunch that we feel is appropriate, we talk with the parents about that. If it's a parent who happens to also get the lunch support, we try to help assist them more in what some kinds of options could be. Um, and in the eight years that we've done the program, we've only had to... Um, change the program for two families to where the school then bought the lunch for the kids so that the kid would show up with the lunch. And that was early on in the program. In the last five years, we haven't had any problems with kids that are getting that lunch support not showing up with an appropriate lunch. Right. That's a unique plan. Yeah. Did you did you borrow that from another school, or was that kind of born out of your own doing here? Well, that actually was, that was, a we, we kind of just, developed that that was one of our out-of-the-box thinking that that kind of originated here um the grocery store also if we purchase a certain amount at once will give us a really nice discount so we're able to serve the same number of children we were able to serve in the other program um but given families choice given the families the responsibility to to get the food here um and it also cut down on you know the need for us to have a space to serve these lunches out of, and for the pay, you know the paperwork, and so the money is going again directly to the kid and to instead of to indirect administrative cost. That's a great plan. Yeah, I like that. So you've got your you've got the buses and your nutrition program as your non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. You have stayed out of debt all of these years we have what have you had to sacrifice you mentioned band and and athletics but what else have you had to sacrifice um it sometimes takes us a little longer to um update things in the classroom Mm -hmm. um our technology is more on a rotating schedule instead of you know we aren't always able to fund every initiative right away um, all of our furniture in the entire school is furniture that has come from school pub, traditional public schools that have closed to move into a new school where they've purchased all new furniture. And we go in and pick out the furniture. As you can see, that's totally still good. Absolutely. Um, we actually are just now replacing one set of chairs that we purchased in 97 from Wake County that was pulled out of a school that was closing. We've only had to replace one set of chairs so far. Um, so being really creative with how you're spending those funds. You know, I, I, I've been in some newer schools and, and walk in and see the amount spent on the furnishings. And it, it's, I wonder how that's done. You know, is that the, are we, what are their non-negotiables? <laughs> it's kind of what I ask in my head sometimes. Yeah, that's, that's a good question to ask yourselves at yeah. all times. So if, if you were speaking to a school leader who is in the process of opening a school or in their first couple of years, speaking the, from the perspective of a, of a school that has, over the course of 19, almost 20 years, grown 
sounds like closer and closer every year to mm-hmm. living out the mission that you're communicating to your families. What, right. what advice would you give them? Um, to not sell out. Um, we've, um, to really make sure that when you commit to your mission, every decision you make financially and operational really folds back into your mission and don't sell out to something that's either going to save you money or something that's going to help raise money um just really keep true to that um and to ask yourself with every decision is this what's best for the kids because when i hear school systems um being upset about charters taking money from them in my head i i often want to shout at the radio or to the tv or to the newspaper it wasn't your money to begin with (laughs) it was the kids money and i think for new leaders to remember it's not your money it's the kids money and so if you're not spending that money directly on impacting those kids um then that may be a decision you need to rethink yeah it's it's great to see what it's kind of grown into because we started out with a red clay mud field and four trailers and we had our buildings weren't ready when we first opened and so we had um had school for six weeks in a church that we would go in every Sunday night, take down all the religious icons or either cover them up and convert it to a school. And then on Friday night, we would pack it, our stuff back up in the trunks of our car, convert it back to a church. And so then when we did come to this campus and we moved into our modular units that we have, the kids were like, wow, which half of the room is ours? Because they seemed so much bigger than the small Sunday school rooms we were in. Uh Um, so it's just been really cool to watch it grow and to look out there now and be proud of what it looks like in the gardens and the space and just to be proud of knowing how kids feel when they walk in this place, that this is their school. Wonderful. Buffy, thank you sure. for sharing your story. I hope that was helpful. I, I... I know it was. I'm Good. really grateful to you for giving Absolutely. an hour of your time. I'm excited to, to shoot this out Absolutely. for other school leaders to listen to. Okay, sounds great. Yeah, thanks for coming by. Hey everyone, Jeff here again. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast this week. I encourage you to go back and listen to the first three episodes with Zach Perfit, Eric Sanchez, and Mark Tracy. And, you know, as sticking around this long and listening to the whole thing, the whole hour all the way through, we'd really like to uh, send you a, uh, a gift from us to you uh, to start off your new year. It's something I know you'll need. So uh, send me an email if you'd like to receive the gift. My email is jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at leaders-building-leaders.com. I look forward to working with you this year.